Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, come on in and have a seat. It's so good to have you here uh, this morning. Just get a couple of quick announcements, and then we'll open our time in prayer. Um, one, you probably saw the announcement that uh, Ray Halpin passed away this week. Um, it uh, was, uh, if you hadn't heard, it was such a shock. Um, he seemed to be doing well after his surgery, and uh, there must have been some complications. So we pray for Kathy, pray for her and her family. Uh, she's not going to be here with us uh, today. She's spending some time with family, but pray that you uh, be praying for her and her family as they're going through this time. So um, it's good to have the Hubbing Home ladies here with us uh, today, and so we're looking forward to their testimonies as well. And then just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, one, baptism. Uh, we celebrated the Lord's Table last week, the communion service last week. It's one of the ordinances of the church. Another ordinance of the church is, is um, baptisms. And if you've never uh, gone through believer's baptism, and if you're interested, please find one of our um, one of the pastors or elders. We would love to talk to you. And also, there is a sign-up sheet on the desk out front. Please sign up. We'll be um, putting a list together, and we'll be doing a baptism soon, uh, Lord willing. Uh, today, we're also... Uh, doing a new members class. It's going to be a two-week new members class immediately after service. It will be in um, my Sunday school room, which is um, through this hallway and then off to the left. Um, so I would love it if you were there. I see about 20 of you have signed up, which is pretty exciting. Um, but if you haven't signed up, please feel free to come. And we're going to take the next two weeks to kind of talk about the reason for membership. We'll talk about uh, membership here at the chapel at Warren Valley, and we'll look forward to uh, learning and growing with you. And I think that's all that I have of my announcements. It is. Let me read this passage from Psalm 46. It goes this way. It says this, Psalm 46. This is the word of the Lord. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in troubles. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. His, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought the desolation on the earth. He makes the wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Pray with me. Father, that passage talks about the fact that God is our refuge and our fortress and ever-present help in troubles. Father, for many of us today, we're going through trials and troubles. Our nation, our world um, are going through that. Maybe immediately in our families, we're feeling the same trials and troubles as well. Father, remind us that you're in the midst of your believers, that we will not be moved. Help us to be still and to know that you are God 
and that you will be exalted among us and you will be exalted in this world. We pray for our sister Kathy right now who's grieving the loss of Ray. Lord, I pray that you'd be comforting her in ways that she can't even imagine. Thank you that she has some time with her family this weekend, Father. I pray that that would be an encouragement to her. And Father, be with her in those challenging and difficult times. We pray for those that are continuing to struggle with cancer in our body, in our midst here. Uh, Lord, I pray for Diana. We pray for Marty. Pray for Gary. Father, I pray that you would continue to work in their lives to, to promote the healing, the restoration, give wisdom to their doctors, and strength for them as well. Lord, I thank you for the Hubbing Home. We look forward to hearing their testimonies today. Uh, Father, thank you for that ministry. Thank you for the ladies that are being impacted by that ministry. Thank you for the fact that the gospel transforms lives. Father, help us to hear that. And Father, I pray for my brother, Tim, as he opens your word today. Father, give him your words. Help him to speak with boldness and passion and help us to hear Pray for the music team, Father, as they lead us in music worship today. Thank you for their skills and gifts, Father. Help us to worship you well. In Jesus' matchless, holy, and powerful name we pray. Amen. sing with us. I was buried. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind away? It was my tomb. It was my tomb. Till I met you. I was breathing. I was breathing, but not alive. And all my failures. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my tomb. It was my tomb. And then I met you. Till I met you. You called my name. You called my name, and I ran out of that grave, out of the darkness, into your quiet name. You called my name, you called my name, and I ran out of that grave, out of the darkness. Now your mercy has saved my soul. Now your freedom. Now your freedom is all that I know. The old made new. The old made new. Jesus, when I met you, you called my name. You called my name. Out of the darkness into your glorious 
worship you. You are here, healing every heart. I worship you. Yes, Jesus. I worship you. You are here, turning lives around. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, mending every heart. I worship you. And that is who you are. That is who you are. 
Yes, Lord, you're the way maker. You're a promise keeper. Yes, that is who you are. We trust you, Lord. We look to you. We need you, Lord. We need you to make a way. That is who. That is who you are. 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 Yes, you're our Savior. You're a wonderful counselor. You're a faithful. We proclaim that this morning, Lord. Whatever the issue is, whatever the problem is, you've made a way when there was no way. Let's sing this. Our Savior, wonderful counselor. And you are our Savior, wonderful counselor, faithful ruler. We're here to profess our God. That is who you are. Sing that again. You are our Savior, wonderful counselor, faithful ruler. We're here to profess our God. That is who you are. Yes, God, this morning we profess that you are faithful. You are a way maker. You're a promise keeper. You're a wonderful counselor, a faithful leader. And Lord, we know one day you are returning and all those broken and crooked paths that we've walked along, Lord, will be made straight. Everything that is wrong in this world will be made right. We look to you, God, for that. In the meantime, you've called us here. In becoming Christians, God, everything doesn't become perfect. We just have a different perspective. And we have our creator following us and guiding us and leading us and showing us that there's a different way to live this life. Even as Christians, we fluctuate back and forth on this. It's not easy, but we thank you, Lord, that you are there. You are a promise keeper. You've saved us. You've forgiven us. You've redeemed us. You're not going to let go of us. We thank you, God, this morning for this time of worship. We ask God we continue to worship through hubbing home and through hearing your word from Pastor Tim. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. privilege this morning of having the uh, Walter Huffingham Choir with us. They're a ministry uh, that has a, uh, I'm going to say, a campus over in Oxford, New Jersey. They came there a few years ago. We've been involved with them, I think, for a little over 20 years, uh, supporting them, sponsoring what God's doing there, praying for them, and a number of folks within our church family go and minister at the site there. So we're very grateful to have them here. I'm going to ask Brianne if she would come at this time. Uh, introduce the ladies, and uh, they're going to share a few songs and a few testimonies with us this morning. Grateful to have you here. There you go. Uh, good morning. Um, like as Pastor Tim said, my name is Brianne. Um, I have the incredible honor of uh, being one of the staff members at the program. Um, and like he said, we are located pretty much in your backyard, one of our centers. Um, but kind of before I go down that road, um, I will 
share a little bit about uh, my own testimony of um, not only where I went, how the Lord pulled me out, um, and how I landed as a staff member. Um, a little over four years ago, I was sitting in one of those chairs over there um, as an atheist. I um, was full of hatred and brokenness, um, defeated, and I had walked in here completely unaware of what a uh, Christian life would look like. And I was not only welcomed in love, but in grace uh, by this entire congregation. Um, I will never forget it. It was a church service. There was a play. Um, Miss Elizabeth had an anchor. I think Pastor Tim's son-in-law was Jesus. And um, that started the process. I gave my life to the Lord a couple, year, couple week, days later. Um, but in that, um, this church in specific um, played an instrumental part in this walk. Um, we are, so the Hoven Home in itself is a, um, it's a loving family community driven to uh, point women to Jesus. Um, it is done in a six or 12 month program um, that is based around the word of God. It is a biblically centered discipleship program and uh, we point them to the only answer and the only truth in our lives. Um, the scripture that always comes to mind is, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you were once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Um, they are now saying that the end result of addiction is jails, institutions, or death. And uh, we now, we firmly believe here at the Hoving Home that there is a much greater difference and ending to that. Um, we provide an opportunity for women to not only understand how much the Lord loves them, but then how to practically live that out in their identity in Him. Um, they are taught the Word of God. They are taught scriptures. Um, there is an independent curriculum that leads them through healing and trauma and um, inst emotional instability and codependency and pride and rebellion and all these things as women we carry around that keep us stuck in that bondage um, we also learn how to choose him over other things um, we learned healthy coping skills because the ones that we were comfortable with that won't bring us forward that'll bring us backwards um, we have five centers in four states um, the most recently opened is a mother and children in our New York campus um, we also have a crisis center down in North Carolina, so that's like this launching pad that'll send them into one of our long-term. Uh, so the ministry is growing astronomically, and it's only because it's a vessel. Um, the Christ, it is a Christ-centered program, and that is why it's succeeding in this world. Um, we all know somebody in our families and our lives that have been addicted to by, are affected by addiction, and um, women have been reported as the highest, highest rate of. Um, people struggling. They are the fastest growing. And um, there's not many faith-based programs out there. Uh, we are a nonprofit. We run on private donations, church support, um, community, volunteers. Uh, it is incredible what uh, people pour into when they can see God moving. Um, and the program itself is set up into four stages. Um, first, desire to change. That's it. That's, the, that's what the Lord puts in our hearts. We need to change. Um, desire to learn, desire to grow, and desire to launch. Um, we set women up for success afterwards. Um, we are way more just as focused on that as their program. Um, it's how do we then get you back into wherever the Lord calls you to. Um, 
So my life, um, I, I'm from North Jersey. Um, I was born into a family, your typical suburbi, uh, suburban middle class. Uh, my dad worked a lot, my mom stayed at home. Um, she was really strict, really feisty, really controlling. I am my mother, um, by the way. <laughs> and uh, that started this like want to do things brand's way. Um, I fought every guideline, I fought every rule, I thought you know this was normal, normal, uh, typical bratty teenage stuff and um, it started with cigarettes. That was like my first crack. Um, I was a good kid, I was a good student, you wouldn't have looked at me and been like oh she's gonna go down a path that might get really ugly for a while. Um, but it started with cigarettes and then it was socially acceptable, marijuana drinking, um, which progressed into college. Um, it started with harder party drugs, but I was always the one that did things a little harder than everybody. I was always one they were carrying home. I always, I started smoking weed throughout the day, and um, but in denial. I thought this was normal. I thought this was your typical par party scene. I was in a party squad in Penn State, and um, my mom passed away. And I now, I had searched to fill this void in me, like we all do as humans, in anything and everything, and now that void got bigger when I lost my mom. Um, unhealthy coping skills, alcohol, pills started, and I found contentment in this little white pill given to me by somebody I trusted and loved. And um, that sent me on a 12-year um, heroin addiction. I became um, a polysubstance chronic relapser deemed by all 13 secular programs I had ever been in. Um, they would look at me and been like, you need this, you need this, you need this to get better. And they never gave me the answer. I was an atheist. I was um, thought this was normal. I used to proudly identify as that, sadly now. And um, I maintained stability for a while. I was always the one like, I'm okay, I've got this, I've got this, I don't have this, I don't have that. And um, I landed myself out in Pennsylvania, um, followed a man who I thought I was gonna marry, and uh, we ended up in Philadelphia. And he was arrested, and I was left to um, find my way in the streets. And I was homeless, um, addicted, lost, broken, defeated in a neighborhood called Kensington. Um, it is known as the open-air drug market of the East Coast. They put it up on Skid Row, um, on the same level as Skid Row, and I adapted. I lost, I threw away every moral, every life lesson, everything my mother had instilled in me. Um, I did what I had to do to survive, to stay high, to stay well, and um, I that led me uh, down a really evil and dark path. Um, and for a long time, everything I'd been involved in, it didn't match up to the fact that I thought that this is where I deserved to be. I had accepted, I knew that this is where I landed, um, but God. And um, I had been street homeless for about four years. The last two, I had just completely given up on life. I used to try to die. and. Um, the Lord, that song that he called me out of the grave, he not only called me, he dragged me out. Um, he broke down whatever walls of whatever he had to and dragged me, plopped me into a discipleship program. Um, and I've never looked back. I've got over four years clean. And I, it's, um, it's, uh, I'd like to say that life has been pretty. I mean, life has storms, um, but I know the anchor now to hold on to. And uh, I, I don't run to drugs. I run to the cross when there are problems in life, when it comes up. Um, I'm a woman of integrity. I have responsibilities. I have um, just an honest way to do life today. And that is based solely on the principles of God. Um, when I go left, he shifts me over. <laughs> and uh, I trust that in him now, you know? It's not my way anymore. And um, I have have huge blessings in my life that I never thought 
ever were possible. I thought for a long time I didn't deserve that. Um, I was too far gone. I was that one that was too far gone. And um, he now gives me opportunities. Part of my job is to reach that one woman because uh, we all know none of us are too far gone. And um, so I would like to introduce the choir, right? Yes. So thank you. Oh, so these things um, that everyone, they were passing out at the door. Um, a lot of you guys are such great partners with us. We love you. We love the um, support. Um, if you haven't filled this out, please fill one out. If you have, just update it. We might not have your up-to-date information. Um, and we are excited for how far this partnership goes. Keep us in prayer. Um, we always, that is a number one partnership. And um, we love you. We love the support from this. And I particular, this church will always have a place in my heart. Hi, good morning. My name's Morgan. I'm 36 years old and I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm the middle of three children. Um, for as long as I can remember, my mom struggled with a lot of mental health issues. And because of this, I suffered terrible anxiety growing up. Um, my father was the caregiver to the family and he did the best he could to raise us, but um, he was what you might consider a functioning alcoholic, so he could be very critical sometimes. Um, when I was 14, uh, my dad stopped drinking, and in that same week, my mother was diagnosed as bipolar. So slowly, my parents became two very different people. My dad got better, and my mother deteriorated. So when either of them were physically present, neither of them were really emotionally available. So um, I started seeking attention in any other means possible, men, drugs, um, and alcohol. When I was 16, I tried heroin for the first time. Um, my youth progressed on and off throughout the birth of three children, countless detoxes and rehabs, overdoses, and even prison time. Um, sometimes I would get clean for a little while and then something bad would happen and I would just always go back to my safe place, which was heroin. Um, the past couple years of my life have just been very dark. I haven't seen my children at all and because of all the guilt, shame, and depression, I just completely and totally gave up on myself. Um, I actually hoped that I would die and believe that my family would be better off without me. And this just led me to a very dangerous lifestyle, opening the door for a lot of trauma and abuse. But fortunately, because of the lifestyle, um, I was arrested and this turned out just to be the biggest blessing in my life because um, for the first time in as a long time, my probation officer um, told me that he actually cared about me. And so I had hope and um, I was court mandated to a 30 day program and near the end of the 30 days, I just heard God spoke to me very clearly and he told me that it wasn't his will for me to go back to a place that he saved me from. So I just chose to surrender to God's will because I know looking back that God's been saving and pursuing me for a long time. Um, through Since coming to the Hoving Home, I finally feel the love, significance, and worthiness that I've been searching for in my God. Um, through being obedient to him, he has restored the relationship that I have with my brother, and he's just given me a bond with my sister that we've never shared before. Um, I still haven't seen my kids or spoken to them, but I know that God's faithful, and I believe in his promises, and it'll happen in his time. Um, I'm not really sure what my future looks like, but I do know that I want to take what the enemy intended for evil and turn it into good, and I plan on going back to college to study behavioral science. And the scripture I stand on is Isaiah 48.10. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver is refined. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. Thank you.
My name is Diane. I'm 75 years old. I have three children and I have five grandchildren. Growing up, my parents were alcoholics and my mother was mentally ill in and out of a mental institution. It was a difficult childhood. I did have a sister three years younger and I tried very hard to protect her. But my mother also tried to kill me a few times. So what I did was I built these thick emotional walls between me and everyone else, including God. But Jesus never left me. I moved back to New Jersey, married a man who turned out to be unfaithful many times. And he was psychologically abusive. I tried to leave him, but we had three children. And the price for me to leave him was to give up my son. And I wouldn't do that. So I stayed and I kept my family together. I did have a couple of affairs. I was trying to run away to find love and emotion and, and comfort, but I knew that was very, very wrong. I had lost myself, my beliefs, and my God. A babysitter became part of our family. I loved her. I nurtured her. I took care of her. <clears throat> when she was sick. Sometime in his teens, my son walked in on her and my husband. I had been betrayed by my husband and by someone I considered a daughter. There was a lot of pain there. Now, I had been a functioning alcoholic for close to 20 years, and this year my drinking got much worse. But Jesus never left me. I don't care how far I ran. I don't care how fast I ran. Jesus never left me. I fell twice from drinking, landed in the hospital with bleeding in my brain, and I knew the third time I could be killed. Plus, I had totally and completely alienated my children. I was so desperate. So finally, I turned toward Jesus and I entered the Hoving home. And there, with God's mercy and compassion helping me, I have been able to start taking those walls down, brick by very painful brick. I also know that I have the help of my Hoving sisters who help me with compassion and love. I have to tell you, turning my back on Jesus has caused me a lot of pain. But I'm back on my walk with him, and he holds my hand when I stumble. Jesus does call upon us to forgive, and through prayer and faith, I have been able to forgive those who hurt me so deeply. And I know that Jesus has forgiven me and Jesus has helped me forgive myself. I have total and complete faith in his grace. And I will never, ever turn my back on him again. My future is to love my children. Love my grandchildren. Be active in my church. 
and I would like to share my faith. I would like to help those experience the same love of Christ that has sustained me for so many years. The scripture that speaks to my soul is Philippians 4.13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength.
much. Father, we are grateful for uh, the beauty of the ministry that uh, you have uh, created in the Walter Hoving home. Thank you for the beauty of the stories of the amazing grace that you have displayed uh, that we have been privileged to hear this morning. Lord, I pray over each of these ladies that the path that you have brought them to would be, they would see it through to completion and they would see their lives completely restored and useful for the glory of God. So the favor that you give, we pray over them. And, and as we looked at in Sunday school this morning with the kids, you give greater grace uh, for that acute need that is present. And for these ladies, God, we pray that that grace would be beautiful and abundant for them. And uh, so just pray your blessing over them. Bless the word that we now look at. Uh, as we look at Solomon's life, God, there are a lot of similarities uh, to his struggle and ours and these ladies. So teach us through it, we pray, in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. And uh, we're continuing in our study in that book. Um, so just would like to turn your attention there uh, this morning. And the kids can be uh, released for junior church as well. My wife is my helpful reminder. I tend to forget. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You know, it's interesting when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you realize that Solomon himself is on a bit of a run. Right? There is a period of time in his life when he is struggling with the purpose of life. And so he seeks to cram a lot of things into the voids in his life so that his life will at some level find meaning. But as one writer has said, one commentator has said, Solomon in this book hits a lot of bad, hard road. Thankfully, the book records the transparency of his struggle under the sun. That is, as he's looking at life apart from God, he finds that it becomes meaningless and empty. So 38 times in the book, he will say that life from this horizontal perspective is meaningless or the idea of being like vapor, futile. Uh, it shows up and then it's gone and he is unable to find ultimate meaning in life. And the question that I think we need to ask as we study the book of Ecclesiastes is, how do I escape this meaningless cycle that we often find ourselves in, where our thinking turns away from Godward thinking to very horizontal thinking? How do I break out of this meaninglessness and futileness and vexing nature of life and find life that is full of purpose and meaning? Well, Solomon, in the early part of chapter 2, says, I kept my heart from nothing, verses 9 and 20, from pleasure, from sex, from extensive building, from fine arts, from a temple project that took 20 years to build. Solomon has poured himself into life, has used all of his intellectual and financial capacities to make life worth living. But at the end of it, he comes to a place where he says, it is in fact Futile. Well, we pick up our text this morning in verse 12. And it's interesting how the text begins, right? Because it says, then I turn my thoughts to. And you get this idea. Solomon is traveling down a road that is long and hard. And he goes from one thing to the next 
to the next, trying to deliver himself from the meaninglessness of life that seems to be so haunting for him. So verse 12, he says this, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, also madness and folly. What more can this king's successor do than has already been done? That's the vexation. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the, fuel, of the fool will also overtake me. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not long be remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So we're going to look at two sets of contrast. One is the advantages of wisdom. And then secondly, the benefit of hard work. Okay, so let's look at verses 12 through 17. And really what, what, what Solomon concludes is that wisdom has advantages, but folly is attractive. Okay, and it's interesting how he says this. Wisdom has advantages, but folly is attractive. The idea of being a free spirit, of letting it go, of trying anything, there is something about that that is attractive to us, isn't it? Right? That person that can just not have a care in the world, at least apparently. Right? So what Solomon's observation is going to be is that wisdom is better than folly, it has benefits. The idea is wisdom tends to be more productive than carelessly throwing it to the wind. Most people that throw the, to, to the wind, that live carelessly, live a large life, eventually seem to have to come back to reality and deal with life itself. And so Solomon says wisdom is, in this sense then, better. He says in verse 13, he says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. And the idea simply is this, to, to obtain an education, to become wise about life gives more benefits. It's more productive. It enhances life because of good decision making. And then he, then, he, then he uses a contrast, right? He says, wisdom is better than folly, just like light is better than darkness, Okay, recently we visited our daughter in Missouri. I was in a room that I am unfamiliar with. And when you wake up in a room that's dark that you're unfamiliar with, you usually incur some type of pain. Okay, and that pain is usually uh, related to things that you kick because you can't see. All right, and so I had this rude awakening that as I got up and it was dark and I was trying to find my way around the room to get myself ready for the day, that I was struggling and then this moment of brilliance came, and that is there's a light on my phone. And if I use that, I'm likely to avoid the pain that I was experiencing. So it's in that sense that, that Solomon, as he reflects, says light is better than darkness, and so wisdom is better than folly. There are advantages to being wise. There are accomplishments to come. There are benefits. But in the second half of verse 14, he says this, but I came to realize that the same fate, death, overtakes them both. 
Verse 15, he says, then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will also overtake me. What then do I gain by being wise? Can you see the conundrum that he comes up with? The thought that vexes him is this. I have gained intelligence. And if you study through Solomon's life, you find that he was an incredibly wise man. But the reality that he's struggling with is that the wise person lives and dies. And the same thing happens to the fool. One statistic proves, I'm making this up, okay, that the death rate of Harvard grads and graduates from Centenary College is the same, right? So you can go to an Ivy League school or you can go to a more local school, and the idea of going to the Ivy League school is life will definitely be better. But Solomon's uh, vivid observation is that wisdom does not eliminate death. In fact, death itself is the great equalizer. In verse 16, he says, For the wise and like the fool will not be long remembered, for the days have already come and gone, when both will be forgotten. And that is the, if you will, the raw and irritating reality that Solomon is battling with as he looks at life purely from a horizontal level. Okay, not factoring God in, but life under the sun, life on earth as we know it, Solomon says this, this is a vexing reality that both the fool and the person who was cautious and thoughtful and inventive both will quickly be forgotten. And that reminder of the temporary nature of life causes Solomon to say, what is the benefit from a human perspective of not why did I avoid throwing it to the wind and just live a carefree life? I focused on wisdom and wise living, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes us and that we will both be forgotten certainly overtakes us. It's fascinating how we resist that reality without even knowing it. We make tombstones, as one writer observed, out of granite, not cardboard. Why do we do that? Why are tombstones made out of granite? You know why? So that the legacy of that individual's life will live on. That's the hope. And usually on that tombstone, it says something like this. Gone, but not what? Forgotten. I don't, I don't know if it's simply a factor of age uh, or just the busyness of life. The ability to remember important people or to remember people's names, right? There's a struggle with that. I, I, I thought back as I was working through this, what was the name of the neighbors that lived directly around my house within two to three houses, people I hung out with? You know what I'm, I'm finding? I'm finding that I struggle to even remember their names. They, when the demise comes, the truth is that all of the accomplishments are quickly forgotten. And what do we do? We're on to the next thing. Okay, and what Solomon says is, I find that vexing. I did a little research this week trying to look at the discoveries of very intellectual, wise people. I thought of a guy named Alexander Fleming, who in 1928 made a great discovery. It was the discovery of penicillin, arguably one of the most significant medical discoveries for, for decades. But most of us can't remember that it was him that discovered it. Horace Wells in 1844 discovered anesthesia while he was working with nitrous oxide. Now I'll confess, when I was a kid, I had a deep love for nitrous oxide when I was at the dentist, okay? 
that just helped me get through that experience, right? It, it, it kind of nullified the pain, but I never knew that Horace Wells did that. The name Thomas Adams, the guy that was working on rubber, working with a chickle tree, made the discovery of gum. Eugene Polly in 1955 discovered the first remote control, obviously one of the most divisive and irritating discoveries of all time, but you probably didn't know that it was he that discovered that. So you have all of these important discoveries over time, but you can rarely remember the person who had the wisdom and the discipline to bring about that discovery. And Solomon, as he looks at that, says, I find this to be raw. I find this to be a vexing reality. So in verse 17, he concludes, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, right? See, so what do you sense? You sense that even though he can look around and see accomplishments that are baffling, that cause the Queen of Sheba hearing of Solomon's reputation and saying to herself, I can't believe that someone could be that successful. She comes to visit Solomon and at the end of the day, what does she say? Solomon, I heard that you were smart. And I heard that you had done great things, but everything I heard fell short of what you had actually accomplished and of the depths of your wisdom. And still Solomon is forced at the end of his journey of this hard road to have to confess that all of the hard work at the end of the day was not worth it, all of the discipline, because the truth is this, death is the great equalizer, and we all have to reckon with that fact, that my accomplishments and my wisdom will ultimately find uselessness at the time of my termination, and that, for Solomon, causes a great and deep frustration. That leads him then to verse 18, where he, he moves from wisdom onto the thought of a hard day's work. So I think hard, I, I apply my mind, I get things done, but at the end of the day, I die and I'm quickly forgotten. Psalmist says that is a vexing experience. In verse 18, he says this, I hated all the things I had toiled for. And the idea of toil is hard work, strenuous, sweating work by the sweat of the brow. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun. Why, Solomon? Because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. Conclusion, this too was meaningless. So what is Solomon saying? And it, so if the first point is that wisdom has advantages over folly, the second point of this text is that hard work has benefits. And, and ultimately the benefit of the hard work is what I earn by that work. It's what I'm able to accumulate and bring together the, the evidence of my hard work, uh, almost my resume. So that at the, at, at, at the time in my life when I've, I've had good accomplishments, I can sit back and look at it. And that's apparently where Solomon is in his life. He's lived wisely. He's worked hard. And now he takes time to observe the outcomes of all that he's done. His, his observation is this. Hard work has benefits. But it raises two irritating conclusions. And I want you to see how he says this. So in verses 18 and 19, 
he kind of unpacks this after saying it's meaningless. He says that the, in the middle of verse 18, it's meaningless because I must leave them to one that comes after me. And the idea is this. I get everything together. All the marbles are in order and then wham, my life ends. And that's what Solomon is doing. He's, he's looking at his accomplishment. He's seeing that he is chronologically advanced. And as he is chronologically advanced, he begins to wrestle with his demise and realizes that one day, all that I've gotten together will become meaningless. The benefit of his work is temporary. I get it all together and then it's gone. Separation from all that I Earn by my heart effort is inevitable. Folks, that's true for all of us. No matter what we get together, it will only and always have a temporary earthbound benefit. Okay? And so be careful how much value you place in temporal achievements and accomplishments. Because one day you will experience separation from it. You, as one writer said, you can't take it with you. Okay, it reminds me of a, of a story that I heard years ago. It's kind of a meant to be humorous, but it has a strong reality to it. It talks about the fact that in, in, in a small town, uh, one of the more prominent and wealthy business owner dies. And a couple men are gathered at the local bar and they're talking to the guy that is, is typically the most drunk person in the bar, the guy that's always there. And they're having a discussion amongst themselves about how much do you think he left behind? And the drunkard at the bar looks at them and quips everything. And see, folks, it doesn't matter how much I accumulate in life. The truth is that one day the door of death will close and I will be permanently separated from everything that I have done, from all of my accomplishments and all that I have saved. And as Solomon, and, and I, I think this is probably true, the more you have, the harder and the more biting this reality is, the more raw it is, that even though I have done well, I have accumulated, I am going to have to give it up and I am going to have to leave everything behind. But then he goes on in verse 19. He says, so I, I must leave them, verse 18, to the one who comes after me. That is uh, logically to his heirs, to his offspring. But he says in verse 19, and this, I've worked through this with people personally. He says, and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, right? And this, this becomes interesting. His, his, his thought is, so I work hard. I accumulate all of this wealth. I have all of these accomplishments. My life ends and somebody else is going to inherit all of my accomplishments. And here's the thought in Solomon's mind. This is the vexing thing. How do I know, how do I guarantee that they will wisely handle the results of all of my work, right? And what is he thinking? That work was hard, I've accumulated, and now my life is coming to an end. And when it does, I have to leave it behind. I will be severed from it. The other thing that vexes him, I don't know if they'll handle it wisely. And that for Solomon is something that is deeply frustrating. They may squander it, and verse 19 goes on to say, 
they'll have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. Now, if you know the story of Solomon very well, you know that Solomon's most likely heir to his throne was a son named Rehoboam. And if you study the life of Rehoboam, here's what you'll find. In short order, Rehoboam squanders the entirety of everything that Solomon accomplished, divides the kingdom, and leads to serious seasons of trouble and struggle. Here's the question. As Solomon looked at the character of his son Rehoboam, what, what, was there a fear that welled up in him that is exposed in this text? I get all this together, I'm separated from it, it goes to my son, and my son is a fool, so he will squander it. And Solomon says, that is utterly vexing. What is he saying? What is the benefit of all that I've gotten if one day it will be wasted? If one day I will be separated from it? That, that starts to change how we should look at life, doesn't it? Solomon is wrestling with this. And he found it incredibly frustrating. You know, sometimes people have valuable collections, right? Uh, my parents loved collecting antiques for quite a while. I don't know if you guys know this, but antiques are out of vogue right now, right? My parents have some awesome antiques. And a couple of years ago, they started calling us because they were out of vogue for them too. And my mom and dad are like, hey, would you guys be interested in, in, in any of the furniture that we have in the house? And it was crickets. No, all the, and my parents collected, traveled around Lancaster County, up into New England, looking and finding very unique treasures. One's a musket cabinet. That should have some value, right? From the Civil War era, right? Everybody was like, yeah, no. Yeah, no. Searched, spent money that was hard earned, got it all together. And when they decide to try to distribute it, nobody wants it, <laughs> okay? There's something about that that is frustrating that is vexing and as Solomon thinks about his life it's similar to that most of what we leave behind is going to be swept into a dumpster or donated to someone else and Solomon says I find that as he's still alive so frustrating verses 20 and 21 are interesting he says and this is the truth. He says, a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, but then they must leave all that they own to another who has not toiled for it. Do you understand that frustration? You get it together, you build savings accounts, you build a house, you build a farm, whatever it is you're working on, a business, okay? My personal family situation, that's what's there, right? A business that my dad started from nothing, pulled himself by his own bootstraps, worked hard, worked hard in ways that Tim Hoff cannot fully understand. And at the end of his life, guess what? It doesn't go with him. And Solomon's kind of wrestling with that that, that, that truth that small business owners bear an unseen burden that few can appreciate, even their children. They are typically made of stuff that most of us are not made from. They are driven, risk tolerant, they work long hours. Few of us knows, know what it takes to pull yourself like they did. And I grew up with someone like that. I grew up with someone who came from nothing, who worked incredibly hard, had no outside help, no family support. It was costly. Few have a clue what it takes. 
And as Solomon thinks on this, he says the bottom line is that the next generation can rarely appreciate it, what it took. They don't have the game. They don't have the same drive and desire. And Solomon, as he, as he thinks on that, says, this is so frustrating that all that I've worked for, at the end of the day, they get it free. They may squander it, and they certainly can't appreciate it. And Solomon says, for me, that is a mental train wreck. He, he, he's try, trying to get his, his arms around that. And he can't, can't quite grasp it. Look at 22 to 23. He concludes, what do people get for all their toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? So that's his horizontal perspective. All their days of work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. So what are the two things that irritate Solomon when he looks at what he's gotten together? It's first of all that the benefit is temporary and will be left behind. Secondly, the personal cost was very high. And and he looks at that, he he contemplates that, and it starts to bother him. Because what does he realize? That all that work that he put in, all of that accomplishment was costly both physically and emotionally, right? Right? It's, and so what, is, what does he say? Even at night, at the end of verse 23, even at, their, at night, their minds can't rest. At the beginning of verse 23, all, their day, all, all the days of their work is grief and pain. So what is he saying? There's this physical struggle that we go through, and then there is the emotional toll that such accomplishment brings. And Solomon, as he thinks about it, says this is utterly vexing because it all must be left behind. So Solomon unpacks two things for us. Wisdom and folly, at the end of the day, the fate's the same. It's not beneficial under the sun. Secondly, he looks at material possessions and all that he got together, all the hard work, and he has to leave it behind. He says, that is vexing. Let me come to verse 24, which is kind of the first time in the book that Solomon mentions God. Fascinating, right? I've gone through two full chapters and I finally get a mention of God, a, a, a new sense of perspective that Solomon unpacks. So look at what it says in verse 24. He says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and to find satisfaction. That's the exact opposite of the word futile and meaningless. Okay. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and to find satisfaction or purpose in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Watch what he says next. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Interesting, isn't it? Everything is vexing. The road is long. The road is hard. And then Solomon gets this flash of insight, a a God-driven perspective, and a glimmer of hope begins to emerge for the first time in the book. And and, and really, the the, the kind of the, the focus of this concluding statement is this, enjoyment of life's routines, of all the hard work, of all the emotional effort, of all the gaining of wisdom and knowledge, is a gift from God. So the thrust that Solomon, I think what Solomon would say to us, find pleasure in the routines of life. 
Don't look purely from a horizontal perspective. Bring God into the picture and you will begin to understand that there is purpose and meaning in the daily routines of life. All right, because that work, that wisdom is a gift from God, that work is a call from God. It has a divine purpose. It has a sovereign meaning in your life. It is not vexing and empty. It has a purpose unless I look at it simply under the sun. This should affect how Tim Hoff lives on Monday morning. It should affect how you live when you hit Main Street, all right? When you hit the place where commerce takes place and you're engaging and you're working, it should affect how you see it. Colossians 3 kind of extrapolates on this principle. It says about work, whatever you do, work with all your heart. Now listen, as working for the Lord. What was Solomon's problem? Solomon was working to accomplish and to acquire for his own sense of satisfaction. Now, please understand what I'm gonna say. It's not that work should not be satisfying. But if I see my hard work and toil simply as a means of acquiring and accomplishing in a godless way, it will end up in frustration. My life won't have purpose. So in Colossians 3, Paul kind of gives this conclusion. He says, whatever you do, work with all your heart. But notice, as working for the Lord, not as men pleasers. The idea simply is this. When you're at work, do a good job because you are God's representative at work. Not because the boss may see you on your cell phone when you should be on it. Okay? Work in a way that acknowledges that my work is a God-given task. And in a large way, it fits into the larger picture of life and gives my life meaning and purpose. Don't work as men-pleasers, Paul says, since you know that as a reward, you will receive an inheritance. Suddenly things shift, right? The outcome of my work, the benefit of my work is not purely to get a paycheck. It is not purely to accumulate things, even though that purchasing of things is not sin in itself. But if I'm purchasing those things, meaning if I want to pull up in a Bentley so everybody knows I'm somebody, what is Solomon saying? That will end up being vexing because one day you're going to die and you're going to leave that car behind. Uh, a few weeks ago when Hurricane Ian hit, I remember watching a Bugatti, which is a million dollar car floating around in the debris of the storm surge. Guess what? For the person that owns that car, I guarantee you something, that was utterly vexing, right? What's the purpose of my life if in a moment something sweeps in and all that I accomplished is gone, destroyed? Where does that leave me? Well, here's the truth. If that is what you're working for, you will be devastated. Right? And that's why Colossians 3 changes things. Solomon didn't have all of this advanced information. He was searching around for it. Paul tells us clearly, work as for the Lord and there will be a reward for that work that is beyond your paycheck. Okay, and we need to remember that. Right, there is a redeeming perspective that comes into line here. How a believer works and toils is witness. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you're eating or drinking or whatever you're doing, do it all for the glory of God. And when we do that, there is a reason beyond my death for that kind of life. He will 
reward you. Revelation 22 and verse 12, Jesus says this, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to repay all who have been faithful. Folks, isn't that beautiful? That changes why I go to work. That changes how I work. Because I realize that the ultimate benefit and the ultimate purpose and meaning of my life is not temporal. It's eternal. So I go into my work with a different perspective. Since we are newer grandparents, we have the... uh, Interesting platform to watch daughters and son-in-laws with their kids in the toddler phase. And I've talked with some parents with toddlers recently. And I know that for some of you, when the grind is hard, you start to feel like Solomon, right? It feels, oh, diaper after diaper after diaper, crying after crying after crying, tantrum after tantrum after tantrum. And you start to say to yourself, what? Is it worth it? And the answer to that question depends on whether you see that task as simply meaningless or as a divine gift from God. What makes it noble, what makes it worthwhile is realizing that it, the care of those children, is a call from God. It doesn't make it pleasant when you change the diaper. Okay, but it does call me to do that hard task repeatedly in the raising of toddlers because I know that they are a gift from God and that changes how I deal with the whole burden of such an experience. The calling has intrinsic value and meaning as a parent because it is God's design that you should be involved in that. Even on the day when you want to walk out because it's so frustrating. Do you see? So Solomon isn't saying that task that a parent has or a worker has is an easy task, but it has purpose and meaning. It's not vexing and futile. It has purpose from the hand of God. In verse 26, he says this, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. Isn't that Man, that's like a cup of cold water in the middle of a desert in this book, right? It, 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 all of a sudden, you're, like, you're reading this book and you're thinking, this, this is depressing. It makes me long for something greater, and that's the good part. And the thing that it causes you to long for is found in verse 26. To the person who pleases him, who works hard, who applies their mind, who has accomplishments in their life because we are given purpose by God. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. He gives meaning to the routine that seems vexing at times. He gives hope in that, that if I press through to honor and please him, he will never forget. So Solomon, as he looks at God, he says, God is the one who, who, who brings meaning and a sense of purpose to the life that I'm living. The middle of verse 26 is sobering. 
It says, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to one who pleases God. It's a fascinating statement, isn't it? One day, what, so, so here, here's the truth. What Solomon's been saying is true. All of your wisdom at the point of your death, you will be separated from it. And all that you acquire by toil, hard work, physical and mental stress, all that you pull together, yes, one day you will leave it behind and you will have no control and you don't know whether they will be careless or careful with all that you did. You don't know. But if you do it for God, he gives it meaning. And if you don't, it becomes a total loss. Folks, that is a powerful, powerful, sobering conclusion to this portion of Scripture. For Solomon, the end of verse 26 is interesting. He says, this too is meaningless. For now, for Solomon... The argument is not convincing. He, he gets a flash of insight, but he's not fully there yet, right? And that's the point you start to, you start to get. Solomon's saying that if I think about God, there can be purpose in my life, but I'm not fully convinced that that is the right way to live yet. And that's why he says at the end of this, this too is meaningless. He's going to go on to more hard road. It's not going to get smoother right after this. He hears it. He knows it. Isn't this the way it works for a lot of us? We know what God wants, but we're not willing to adapt our lives to God's purposes. So we continue on a road that is still hard. That's where Solomon is. He's got more to say about this experiment in life and the vexing and futile nature of it. So these are my concluding thoughts for you real quick. Number one, our vexation and frustration is often amplified by the lies we believe. Folks, here's what I mean by that. If I think that if I had more, I would be happy. I would find purpose and meaning. I am believing a lie. Okay, and that... That's a sobering lesson that emerges out of this. Because what is Solomon saying? I had more than you. And it didn't work. It didn't make life worth living. It did not satisfy. It didn't make me happy. It didn't allow me to face death with a positive heart. It was vexing. We, if, if you lack, you are tempted to crave. You are tempted to think if I had a little more because we adopt the world's philosophy, the one with the most toys in life wins when the truth is the person with the most toys still dies. So if you make temporal things, ultimate things, you understand what I'm saying? If you make your 401k, what gives you peace about your future? I'm gonna guarantee you something. You were disappointed last month. When your statement came in the mail, here's the truth. If you know what's been going on in the market, it is very likely that you did not expose yourself to the depressing reality of it. You probably didn't even open the statement because you didn't want to know. Okay? And if it throws you down the stairs when you see it struggling and suffering... You're valuing temporal things over eternal things. Folks, the rewards that God gives you cannot be taken away by a depressing 
paper statement on your 401. Truth is, one day you're going to die and leave it all behind anyway. And whether they'll be wise with it or foolish with it, who knows? And for you, the answer will be, who cares? Okay? We believe lies. 1 Timothy 6.17 says this, Teach those who are rich in this present world not to put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God. Because what's the tendency? When I'm doing better, and I, rich is a very relative category, isn't it? When I have more than I need for daily bread, I slip into the category of rich. Okay? And, and Paul says to Timothy, teach those who are rich in the present world not to put their hope in wealth, but to keep their hope in God, to be rich in good deeds. Listen to what he says. In this way, you will lay up treasure in heaven. So death does not separate me from what's most valuable. Death for a Christian actually takes me to what matters most. Death takes me to ultimate purpose in life and delivers me from the vanity and vexation of what even a godly person can see in life. Because the truth is still the same. I get it all together, but at death, I have to leave it behind. If that's all I'm living for, that stinks. But if I, and, and I, I, I thank God for the people in my life who are well accomplished who, who have accumulated more than I could ever hope to accumulate, who have their eyes fixed on the reward. Because that person is rare. And that's what Solomon's saying. Solomon's saying, I don't have that perspective. It's still vain and futile to me. End of verse 26. I can say that. It's, I'm going to be separated from it, but I still don't buy it. It still bothers me. Paul says, teach them. Because that truth mitigates the frustration of money and its temporary value. As a Christian, I give you this encouragement. Live for the destination, not the road. Live for the ultimate reality that Jesus encourages us to see in the book of Matthew chapter 6. He says, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves can't break through and steal, where statements from Merle Lynch can't depress. Okay? Live for heaven. Use your God-given resources to invest in the future. Use your God-given gift of wisdom to expand the kingdom of God. Use your God-given gift of collecting money to expand what God is doing. You can't take it with you, but Jesus says this, you can send it on ahead, as one writer has said. That's a fascinating truth. So that death does not separate me from what I value most. It actually takes me towards it in the presence of God. And then I realize that what matters most is not temporary things. It's eternal things. So when Jesus says, use your money to live wisely, he's not recommending that you send it to heaven. And when you get to heaven, you're going to get a lot of money. What he's saying is when you get to heaven, the temporary things will fade away and the ultimate things will take their proper place in your heart. And that is how the vexation of life is ended. That's why Jim Elliott said this. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose. Think about that. You're not a fool if you give up what you can't keep to gain 
what you could never earn. And the last thought this morning is this. Perhaps you, for you the futility and vexation and frustration is palpable and you need hope. Jesus Christ came and here's what he said. He said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. His work was the agony of the garden, his heavy lifting and toil of the cross, and all of that to purchase your freedom, to take you from being a rebel against God to becoming a child of God. So the hard work that really needs to be done that leads to lasting value has already been accomplished by the work of Christ. And the question I would ask you this morning is do you know him whom to know is life eternal? Do you look forward? Is death taking you to the prize? Because that is where our hope as believers is found. The hard work that needs to be done, it's done. It's done. On the cross, he said, it's finished. Hope of eternal life, hope of forgiveness, hope of being accepted by God and loved by God is present apart from your performance, apart from your treasures, apart from your wisdom. It's found in Christ alone. And if you don't know him, my encouragement to you this morning would be to cry out and to trust in him alone. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we conclude our time together and prepare to sing our closing song, we want to sing in hope. We want to sing because you, in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the vexing nature of life, you give us hope and you give us promises and you give us relationship through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, my prayer this morning is simply this. If someone here... Uh, does not know you. They don't know what is of lasting value and they are addicted to things of temporal value. Today, God, by your grace, deliver them and show them the glory of the riches of the cross of Christ so that they can find hope and be truly set free, forgiven, and have hope of eternal life with God. Lord, we love you. Pray your blessing over the words that we have heard, over the testimonies we've heard, over the songs that we sung, and now we'll sing. Fix our eyes on Jesus, I pray in his name. Amen. fear when I fear my faithful fail Christ will hold me fast when the tempter would prevail he will hold me fast I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so.
those he saves. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. will hold me fast justice has been satisfied he will hold me fast raise with him to endless life he will hold me fast until our faith is turned to we thank you that you will hold us our Savior loves us so we can leave this morning Lord with that confidence knowing that come what may you are in control we can always trust in you always look to you we thank you this morning for the encouragement from the hubbing home God continue to bless that ministry and bless the ladies that are involved in it May they see your steadfastness and your forgiveness and your mercy. And may they also be steadfast. And may they be true for all of us. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Only you do, God. And you're there. And you understand what we need, when we need it, when the trials come. Thank you for Sunday mornings that we can gather and encourage each other in song and hearing your word, God. Now we put that into action as you leave from this place. Thank you for this morning, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.